Well, let me begin with a uh, question. Would you say that God is man-centered or God-centered? That is, do you view God as ultimately concerned about and committed to mankind, people like you and I, as his ultimate aim? Or do you view God as ultimately concerned about and committed to his own glory and purposes and will? And in that, and because of that, pursuing our salvation and our happiness and our joy. I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but Scripture is clear that the second option is true. The God, God's highest aim is his own glory. And I would also propose that this is not what you get in many parts of our world, including from the church. This is not the view of God that we naturally tend towards as humans. And here's why I bring this up, and here's why this is relevant to where we're going today. If God is ultimately committed to his own glory and witness and purpose, then yours and mine individual conversion and coming to Christ and being saved is not the end of the story. As exciting and significant and as much as we celebrate coming to Christ, and we do, we have been recently in baptisms, all of this is a part of a larger story, a larger plan, a larger purpose of God. And if this is the case, there are of course many implications, but one of them is this, the role of the community of disciples in encouraging one another, teaching one another, spurring one another on, and thereby guarding the witness of God in this world takes on abundant significance. We cannot say that all that matters is me and my relationship with God and the church, other believers are optional. Not if God is concerned about his glory and his witness in this world. So we're doing a short series on church polity, just a few weeks, taking a break from 1 Corinthians. Polity is a word you have probably never used before, um, but just means church governance and authority, and what does that look like and where does it reside? So last week we began by just asking, what is the church, first and foremost? And we said that whenever groups of disciples gather, begin to gather together and, and teach the, the gospel and God's word and begin to disciple those who respond, converts, you have what the Bible calls a church. And as such, that group of believers has a responsibility to assess and oversee credible confessions of faith. That is, a church has some God-given authority to affirm, that is to say, yes, that is a credible confession of faith. That is, as far as we can tell, that person has confessed Christ has heard the gospel, and is a true believer, essentially what we do in baptism. A church has some God-given authority to assess and oversee credible confessions of faith. And so the question before us today and next week is, where does this authority lie? Does it lie just in one single pastor, the senior pastor of the church, 
Does it lie in a group of pastor elders that lead the church or some other leadership um, board? Does it lie somewhere outside of the church in a bishop or the pope or some other individual or group of individuals? Or does God give it to the people that make up the church? And we think, and what, we'll, what I'll be proposing here today and next week, is that God has given some authority to the congregation as a whole, to the people of the church, that they have some responsibility, that you have some responsibility and role, and that God gives a different kind of authority to elders, pastors, those who are called upon to lead the church. And so just to give you the technical term of how we are set up as a church, we are an elder-led congregational church. The elders have, the installed pastor elders have some authority, and the congregation has some authority. And we are set up this way because we think it both has biblical support and is prudent and, and wise. And so today we're going to look at the, the authority of the church. Next week we'll talk about elders. And let me just give you the conclusion right up front and then show you that this is what Scripture teaches. We believe that the congregation the church members themselves, not just the leadership, has final earthly authority in ensuring that the teaching of the church is from God through His Word, is true teaching, and that the people of the church are, to the best of our ability, actual believers. As Jonathan Lehman puts it, um, the foundational claim of a congregationalist so any church that has a congregational structure, is that the entire church body has the final authority under God's word in matters of doctrine, and by implication choosing leaders and discipline, and by implication choosing members. And so hear this clearly up front. What I am trying to convince you of today is that not only does God call you to commit to a local, visible, specific body of believers called a church, but that God has given you some real and weighty authority within that church. That God has given that to you. That I don't give it to you, the pastors don't give it to you, that God has given it to you. That you have a role to help, you don't do this alone, we do it together, that you have a role to help assess and confirm and guard the teaching and membership of the church, and in doing this, guard the witness of God on this earth. And let me just acknowledge up front that this is probably extremely uncomfortable for many of you, that this challenges your view of the church, perhaps your view of your relationship with God, and part of that is because we are trained to be merely consumers of products and services, and we tend to treat the church that way as well. We come, we get what we want, and when it doesn't please us or give us what we want, we just leave. But if church is not a product or a service, but a body that you are a part of, that you belong to, whether it's pleasing to you or not, and if God has given you some authority in encouraging and protecting the purity and witness of the church, well, that changes things quite dramatically. That's a 
very different view of the church than I would say most in our society have. And perhaps you wouldn't say it out loud, but perhaps that's not what you're looking for in a church. And so I have my work cut out for me today to show you that this is what God's Word says. So we're going to start with a couple passages that we looked briefly at last week, 1 Corinthians 5 um, and Matthew 18. Uh, these are the clearest places where we see the whole church being given authority by God. And as I said last week, the focus of these churches is kind of the back door of the church, um, it matters of, of discipline, but we're not so much focused on that today. What we're focused on is what they reveal about the front door of the church and the role and responsibility the church has for its front door. Okay, so we're going to walk through these couple passages and then draw out some conclusions. 1 Corinthians 5, we'll start. Uh, we'll read the first five verses. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man had his, his father's wife. And you were arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, I don't know how you respond to, to reading such a text, especially if perhaps you were newer to Christianity, I wonder how you respond to reading such a text. Perhaps you've heard that Jesus is all about grace, and surely his followers should also be all about grace, and where is grace in this passage? Yes, Jesus is all about grace. Christianity says is the good news that God saves us completely by grace, by nothing that we can do, have done, will do, completely by the work of God in our place for us, Jesus' death on the sins, uh, uh, Jesus' death for our sins on the cross. God did the work. God gets all the glory. We are everything to him. And yet the thing is, God doesn't leave us unchanged from that point on. God doesn't leave us weak and powerless and with the same desires. And God, No, God begins to change us from that moment on. He gives us new desires, new strength. He causes us to love him more and love our sin less increasingly, to have a changed attitude towards God and to our life and to what we are living for. And so what is happening here in 1 Corinthians is that a professed Christian loves his sin more than God, is committed to his sin more than God. Uh, this guy was actually, was continually living in sin, sleeping with his stepmother, and unwilling to repent of that, unwilling to turn, to the extent that it's threatened the credibility of his claim to Christ, right? So just to be clear, this is not just this guy struggling with sin, this guy sinned, and it's not just this guy keeps struggling with sin. No, this is about someone's claim to Christ, by all accounts, appearing to be a sham, because his attitude towards his sin is completely unchanged. And Paul says, let him be removed from among you, meaning do not continue to keep affirming him as a brother in Christ, as a disciple of Christ, when all of the evidence appears to fly in the face of that claim. Now, it doesn't say shun the individual. 
It doesn't say completely disassociate with the individual, have nothing to do with them in every single instance. And it doesn't even say don't let the individual keep, keep coming to the church gatherings. I would say, in fact, that it seems to be the best thing to pursue the individual in the situation, have conversations with them, have them where they're hearing God's word. But don't do things that would continue to proclaim to him and to the church and to the watching world that is looking for a witness of Christ that this is what a disciple of Christ looks like. Unwilling to submit to God, unconcerned about their sin, unconcerned about the glory and witness of God, which communicates that coming to Christ makes no difference, that Christ doesn't change those he saves, that Christ doesn't give us new desires, doesn't cause us to live differently, doesn't cause us to love him more than ourselves, that Christians look no different than the world. Paul goes on in verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, notice that they are to do this when assembled together, uh, because as we saw last week, churches assem assemble. That's what the word church means. Churches actually get together. In such a setting gathering, Paul says, they have the power of the Lord Jesus with them. And in the last verse, when you're assembled together, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So deliver this man to Satan probably means that by removing him from the membership of the church, they are releasing him to the world, the realm of Satan, casting him out into the world. And the goal of this is that he would repent and be, be saved. Now, when we get back in 1 Corinthians in a couple weeks, we're going to be in that passage. So there's a lot in this passage that we're not going to cover today that we will cover in a couple weeks. But the main thing to see here for our purposes is this. A church has, if we are taking 1 Corinthians at first value, a church has some role in assessing whether a profession of faith is genuine, is credible, whether it matches what our lives are saying. God grants the church some authority, not ultimate authority, but some authority in this. Now, I imagine you can think of many objections to this. One of them is, well, doesn't God alone ultimately know our hearts? Yes, of course. Far be it, and shame on any of us if we attempt to know what only God knows. God alone knows each of our hearts. But it's not that we have no way of discerning whether someone is a true believer or not. Or just because our assessments are authority, like all human authority, is fallible and can err, doesn't mean that God removes the responsibility from us. 
Uh, the Bible talks about spiritual fruit for a reason, right? What is spiritual fruit? Well, it's a way that you give evidence of what's true inside and that we see the outward result of what God is doing in someone. Jesus says, bear fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Those changed by God bear fruit, different fruit than they did before they were brought to God. And we, as fellow believers, are not to turn a blind eye to fruit. We're not to say we know someone's heart completely, but we're not to turn a blind eye to fruit. And then we see Jesus say the same thing in Matthew 18, again, which we covered briefly last week, one of the two places where Jesus actually uses the word church, meaning assembly. And Somewhat similar to the 1 Corinthians passage, Jesus gives a series of steps to take if a fellow disciple sins against us. Uh, first, he says, go and talk to them privately, um, between you and them. In other words, try to keep it as small as possible. Just because you feel like you've been sinned against or, or hurt, you don't need to go tell anybody else. Don't gossip. But do seek to reconcile and seek to bring, help somebody come to repentance if there is truly sin between you. The second step, Jesus says, if they don't respond to that, bring in one or two witnesses who, who can testify to the sin to help, again, the goal is to bring to repentance. And if then, it, if then the individual doesn't respond to that, and we'll pick up at verse 17 in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And so the hope is that with the weight of the church behind the call for repentance, the believer will turn and thus prove that their heart has been softened by the gospel, that Jesus is still Lord, and that the Spirit is in them, and that the church could reaffirm them and celebrate with them that they are truly a child of God. Because Christians have a changed attitude towards their sin. They're not sinless, but they do have a changed attitude towards their sin. So that's the goal. But Jesus says if this individual doesn't heed the warning of the church, the church, Jesus says the church has a right and authority to make a proclamation about the individual. Does the church always get this right? No. But Jesus does give the church to make a proclamation. Let him be to you as a Gentile, that is, one who is outside the people of God. Um, there's this bit about binding and loosing that's kind of confusing, right? What is binding and loosing? Uh, there's a lot that we could consider on this, but at the very least, Jesus is giving some human body the authority to declare something as true in the spiritual and heavenly realm, right? Some human body has this authority to declare something as true in heaven or in the spiritual realm. 
And in context here, this would seem to be to declare who is and isn't a true disciple of Christ, who has made a confession of Christ. Now, the million-dollar question is, who has this authority? Again, who, who is the you in this passage? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, some think this is the elders the, or the pastor of a church, the installed leadership, but we think this authority belongs to the church. This is the context in Matthew 18, both before and after the passage about binding and loosing, is the church. As you read on in that passage, it says, wherever two or three on earth agree about anything, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, this is talking about the gathered church and not just the leadership. And so the gathered church in a specific location has some role, some authority to make these kind of declarations. So to sum up both of these passages, the church, and not just its leaders, but the people who make up the church, have, has some authority over its members, over one another. And that authority includes the, the, the authority to affirm or deny whether a confession of faith is genuine. And the hard thing about going through these passages and perhaps why they are so uncomfortable, is because the main focus of these passages is the negative, right? It's about times when the church may need to remove that affirmation, the, the back door. Uh, but I just want to put out there that the vast majority of the life of the church in considering this authority is in a joyful, celebratory, let's come alongside each other way. When someone hears the true gospel, and, and responds and says, that's, that's what I'm holding on to. We celebrate with them. We baptize them, as we've been doing recently. Um, and then as we go on in the life of faith all together, we continue to affirm and celebrate our identity in Christ by, among other ways, taking communion together each week and communicating that this is our identity. And we affirm and celebrate one another's identity in Christ. And as we deal with sin and suffering of various kinds, we come alongside one another, we encourage one another, we forgive one another, we bear with one another. But still... I don't want to brush over the fact that most of this that we just covered so far probably sounds absolutely ridiculous in our day. It has been built into us that we are an authority unto ourselves and that the assessment of our faith is merely, a, merely something between us and God and no one else has a say in that that we are the only authority on ourselves. But that's not actually what Scripture teaches. That's what our culture teaches. Part of being in the church and being a Christian is opening yourself up to the oversight and discernment 
of a church community. They don't have ultimate authority in your life, but neither do you and I have ultimate authority in our lives. Part of what God calls us to do is not having our profession of faith be merely an individual matter, but a matter that the church community has a limited but nonetheless real part in and authority over. Now, it probably wouldn't be wise to say all of this without recognizing that this can obviously clearly be abused. And we have ample evidence of that throughout history, and we don't have to go very far back in history. The church can certainly abuse its authority, as can any human authority be abused. The church can get it wrong on both ends. They can be too loose and too strict. They can add human rules to what God says. They can fail to distinguish between matters of Christian conscience and matters that are not of Christian conscience. All human authority can be abused, and again, we all know that. We don't have to look very far. But the solution to abuse of authority isn't to simply put all authority into ourselves, isn't to make ourselves the only legitimate and ultimate authority of ourselves, which is what our culture does. The book of Judges speaks of a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes and says that that was an evil time where everyone was only an authority unto themselves and they just did what was right in their own eyes. And so the solution to abuse of authority is authority that understands its limits. All human authority is limited. Authority that submits to God and operates for the glory of God is servant-hearted towards others and is accountable and open to correction. Now, even if that is what our authority was characterized by, it would most likely still be despised and rejected in our world. But it does present a stark contrast to the power-hungry, self-centered, and unaccountable authority that operates in much of our world, as well as a stark contrast to the individualistic rejection of all authority outside ourselves that operates in our world. To put it simply, good authority leads to human thriving. Good authority leads to human thriving. And God gives us a blueprint and and direction with which to pursue that. Now, before moving on, I just want to show that a church's authority also pertains to the doctrine and the teaching that a church embraces. Um, In other words, a church should welcome and celebrate and encourage good teaching, and a church should raise an alarm and not tolerate false teaching. And we see this in Scripture as well. Just one verse I'll give you, 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, will false teachers be held accountable? You could probably just open the Bible to a random place and put your finger down and find something that affirms that. Yes, the Bible spares no words about false teachers and says that teachers in general will be judged more strictly. But... 
we also have a responsibility for being listeners. What we hear, what teachers we endure and, and give ourselves to. It is incumbent on the church to be discerning of what they hear, to see that it lines up with sound biblical teaching, and if not, to do something about it. Okay, how does this work practically? What does this mean practically? How does a congregation make use of this authority? And this is where there is a need for much prudence and where churches can... Um, can go about this differently. In reality, all churches, all congregations have some authority, whether it is formally granted to them, whether it's built into the structure and bylaws of the church or not. And so if you're in a church and the leadership continually goes against what the bulk of the church thinks is healthy and wise and, and right, then you can leave that church. You can stop giving to that church. You can make a big fuss about that. So. Every congregation has some authority, whether it's recognized or not. But we think that there is reason to set up a church so that the church itself, the people of the church, have a mechanism or process built in for exercising their authority. And so for us, we have a, a, a church membership process. And the point of this process is very simple. To happily and confidently and with great joy, affirm an individual as a child of God. That's what it's about. To see that those who are given this authority in the church have actually understood and heard and understood the true gospel and responded in faith. I would say in a society like ours in present, at present, um, it's not safe to assume that everyone that one that walks, walks in the doors of a church is a Christian. Or even someone that continually walks in the door of the church. There are hundreds of Gospels out there. There are lots of versions of Jesus out there. I don't think it is safe to just say because somebody says, I believe in Jesus, they mean the same Jesus that you mean. They mean the same Jesus of the Bible. People may come to church for a variety of reasons. And so, of course, we welcome anyone and everyone to walk in the doors of our church and to continue to walk in the doors of our church. But we don't, just by that, affirm you as a member of this church. We think it's wise to have a couple more steps to the process. And so, if we have some responsibility and authority in affirming and overseeing credible confessions of faith, of making a declaration as a church that as far as we can tell, this is actually a genuine believer that we want to put out there for the world to see and say, yes, look at this person if you want to see what Christ is all about. Then it seems more prudent in our culture, at least, to merely be able to say that they walked in the doors of the church. And so for us, and this can look and does look different for, for different churches, but we have a four-week class where we communicate the gospel. We talk about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a part of the church, including the authority that God has given the church members. After this, a couple of the elders will get together with those interested in joining the church, get to know them a little bit more, see that they truly have understood the gospel, and then 
give them a chance to ask any questions. The elders will recommend these individuals to the church, to the existing members, and then existing members will vote to welcome them in. And again, in this, we are simply affirming to the best of our ability that these are genuine believers. We just had a members meeting last week, and we welcomed in six, six new members, and it was a joyful, exciting, encouraging thing to do. Um, it may help you to know that we've never declined any one membership, probably because simply going through these steps, if you're willing to go through the process, especially in our day, um, you're not here just to check a box. You're not here just to feel better about yourself. You understand that the gospel calls you, that God through the gospel calls you to more than just self-assurance and feeling good about yourself, but calls you into a body where you have responsibilities to others and they have responsibility to you. Let me close by just giving you two additional reasons other than this is what we think Scripture actually says, but two additional reasons also drawn from Scripture why you should care about this matter. As perhaps uncomfortable as it might be and perhaps uh, radically different of a view of the church as you might currently hold, let me just throw a couple other things before you to consider. First, you should care about this because assurance of salvation is a precious thing. Assurance of salvation is a precious thing. And a biblical understanding of sin should make us fearful of being the sole ultimate authority over ourselves and the sole ultimate authority of our spiritual condition. Surely you know your own ability to have blind spots. Surely you know your own tendency to justify and excuse yourself to always see yourself in the best light possible. Surely you know your own tendency towards self-justification. And so why in the one area that matters the most, being affirmed as a child of God, having the fruit of our lives being witnessed by other people and, and affirmed, why would we refuse the witness and assessment of other believers? Why would we not humbly say, yes, I think I've made a genuine profession of faith. I think my will is to follow Jesus. I see his working in my life. But I humbly request that, that others give their testimony to that too. I know my own ability to be deceived. And would it not be of great comfort having done this, to receive the affirmation of a church community so that in times of sin and suffering, of temptations and trials, we're not left to merely rely on our own feelings, not left to merely rely on our own conviction, but the conviction of a church community around us. Would that not be a much more stable ground of our assurance than our wavering confidence, the lies of the devil, our unreliable feelings. And then a second reason that we should care about this, as I said at the beginning, God cares about his own glory and witness. Because the witness of the church matters. 
Because Christians in name only, whose lives give no evidence to the power and presence of God, whose lives reveal that they remain Lord of their own lives rather than Jesus, hurt the witness of God through the gospel. And so God gives us each other, calls us into a community called the church in order that we would better display and protect, us, protect the witness of God on the earth. And we do this as we hear one another's confession, profession of faith in Jesus, as we see one another fighting against sin and fighting to love Jesus, struggling as we see a will and delight, will to delight and rejoice and trust in the Lord above all else, as we speak God's word to one another and encourage one another in faithfulness. What God is saying is that whatever risks may come with being in such a community, and there are risks, all of us know every time we gather and commit to individuals with other humans, there are indeed risks. But God is saying through these passages is that whatever risk may come with being in such a community, and some of you have experienced the, the hurt and the suffering that can come with being a part of a church. But if we take these and other passages at face value, God is saying that being a part of such a community, whatever risks and hurt may come, is worth it. Because our assurance and God's glory both increase when we give ourselves to community with other disciples rather than trying to do it alone. Our assurance increases God's glory increases when we gather with one another. Yes, there is so much more that we could say on the topic, but that much we can say is true. And so it is worth fighting for the church to commit to one another in the church. And so we're going to take communion and the implications of taking communion from what we've seen today and the significance of it should be fairly clear that this is not merely a vertical act just between me, us and God. This is a celebration and affirmation of Christ's presence in one another. If you've professed faith in Christ, then this is a way that we gather around and with one another and celebrate what God has done and is doing in your life. If you haven't professed faith in Christ, one of the elders would love to speak with you more about that. But we're going to pray and then take communion together. Let's pray.